This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. They made purple ketchup and green ketchup for a while. And then before that, the predecessor was they made pizza, taco, and I want to say hamburger flavored ranch. Right? <laughs> Terrifying, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's awful. That sounds so Chef, terrible. I, I would take that stuff to the head, man. That was like shot of whiskey for a five-year-old. <laughs> you know, it's like do a shot of pizza ranch. Welcome to Homemade from All Recipes. I'm Marty Duncan. Each week on this podcast, we celebrate the stories behind the recipes we love. And one of the best storytellers I know is Justin Warner. Justin and I became the best of friends during season eight of Food Network Star. He won the show and now he's working with Guy Fieri on Food Network's new show called Tournament of Champions. He also has a new cookbook coming out with Marvel called Eat the Universe. Okay, so the first thing that I'm going to do is uh, try and make something that's going to incorporate Sue Storm and her brother, the Human Torch, Johnny Storm. Uh, So I need something that's going to be somewhat transparent, but something that's going to be spicy. So immediately I said, let's make a hot pepper jelly like you do. Hey, Justin. Hi, Chef. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Living the dream, talking to you, you know, what could be better? Oh, no. So where are you in the world today? For once, I am in my dining room in Rapid City, South Dakota. It's a gray day here, but any day at home is a good day for me. I know that's right. You have been on the road burning it up a lot lately. The new Guy Fieri show is pretty exciting. You want to start off with that? Oh, yeah, sure. Tournament of Champions. I'm the uh, kind of sideline reporter. I give the the uh, home viewer some insight into the action that you're seeing on the screen. That action is essentially head-to-head chef battles that are done and organized in a sort of NCAA bracket-style format. To be the winner, you have to go through all the other chefs on either coast. It's a really intense show. There's a thing called the randomizer, which is essentially five wheels of doom that have like an ingredient or a protein, a, a method of cooking that the chefs have to incorporate. The judging is totally blind, so can't really cook to a judge's specific palate or culinary neuroses. You really just got to be the best chef. So it's an interesting sort of no holds bars. There's no sort of gimmicks other than the uh, randomizer and really the best food wins. I like the randomizer because it puts everybody on an equal playing field. You know, I watched the first episode and I don't want to be a spoiler here, but I thought that that played a big role in the outcome of the first episode that I saw. We would have nailed that thing if we had gotten the waffle maker, man, we would have crushed it. Oh, chef, you know us, man. Waffles, no problem. Pancakes, waffles, that's how I got my start. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that, Justin. Like, how did you get your start in food? I know a little bit about it, but tell our listeners, how did you get your start in food? Well, truly, I started as a dishwasher when I was like 14 or 15, something like that. Whatever the child labor laws in Maryland were at that time, I was like champing at the bit to get a job. I don't know why. I guess, you know, chef, you know me. I have my vices. I like my toys. I like my games. 
games. I like my hobbies. So I wanted to make money. And I intentionally failed at dishwashing because I couldn't stand it. So they moved me out onto the front of house as a busboy. From there, I just kind of kept chasing more and more expensive restaurants because I did the math that the more expensive the restaurant, the more money I would make via tips or tip out or the tip pool or whatever the system was. And eventually, like, I don't know, 10 or 12 years later, I found myself working in a Michelin starred restaurant in uh, New York called The Modern. That was in, well, it's still there, uh, in MoMA, in the Museum of Modern Art. So we had some real heavy hitters as clients there. We'd sell a $12,000 bottle of wine on a Tuesday lunch service. So you really had to be on your A game there. As a waiter, you had to know as much as a chef because you had to articulate and you had to represent. You had to be the ombudsman between the chef and their team and the guest and their (laughs) unsatisfiable desires. So from there, my culinary knowledge was okay, but I had never really applied it in terms of cooking until I tried out for a show called 24-Hour Restaurant Battle with a girl I was seeing at the time. And somehow, miraculously, we came up with a pancake, waffle, and French toast concept that ended up winning us that show. The producers of that show then went on to cast for Food Network Star, and then kind of the rest is history. Next thing was you and me and that casting room with all the fake, they hired these fake people to look as though they were eager applicants when in fact there were only probably 15 or 20 of us in there just to make it look like a real ordeal. And then it was you and I just sitting there talking about socks. It was a great time because of you. Otherwise, I'm not sure I'd have made it. So for those of you who don't know our history, we did season eight of Food Network Star and we were representing Team Alton. It was the year that they had teams and we were sequestered a lot. So when you're sequestered a lot, you get to know a lot about somebody. So I know pretty much I think everything about Justin. So digging up new things to talk about would be hard normally, but Justin's got so much going on. So Chef, if you don't mind, I just want to cut to some of the stuff that you got going on right now outside of the Tournament of Champions, which like I said, I think that's got to be one of the most fun concepts I've seen on Food Network in a while. But our All Recipes community, we're a community of home cooks. And to me, homemade, the podcast is just a natural fit for that audience. And the premise of a recipe is a story that ends with a good meal, that Pat Conroy quote. I want to know how in the world did you take what you know about cooking, translate it to this pressure cooker thing, and then take those old school and favorite family recipes and then turn them into something new? Oh, man, Chef, big question. I came across pressure cooking when I was researching how to cook octopus. There's a scene in the movie Jiro Dreams of Sushi where I believe they use a pressure cooker. And I was not familiar with it. You know, generally, you don't see pressure cookers in restaurants. Restaurants are known for doing things as long as they want. They'll put something in the oven and let it braise overnight because they have the time to do it. They can set it up. That's part of mise en place, being prepared and having one's ingredients and items where they need to be. But myself, and I think a lot of home cooks, don't have that time or organizational bandwidth. So the pressure cooker is a device that has been in use as a stovetop sort of thing for ages. Canning, you know, anytime anybody's used a pressure canner, that's the exact same technology. You're using a pressurized vessel to increase the boiling temperature of water. It's kind of like the opposite of when you're at a higher elevation, right? The air pressure is lower, therefore the temperature of water when it boils is lower as well. 
so I was just curious about this thing. So I just bought one and I didn't know that people were scared of them. I just bought a stovetop Fagor pressure cooker and followed the instructions. And holy moly, the octopus was tender in like 30 minutes. And I mean, it was like fall apart tender. So I was amazed by what this thing could do. And then I started to really like learn about other applications for it. You can have short ribs done and like fork tender in 40 minutes. At that point, who needs sous vide? Doing sous vide 36 hour short ribs. I mean, it's a great thing to put on a menu. But for the home cook, it's not very exciting. I was immediately attracted to the idea of what could a home cook unlock with this. Then entered the electric pressure cooker or electronic pressure cooker that took the internet by storm, the Instant Pot. Everyone is convinced it's the newest invention, but I love pressure cooking. And I think that it's something that home cooks, especially home cooks who want to follow a recipe, but maybe don't have the hours to babysit a tough protein or monitor a pot of beans or are nervous about cooking rice, the electronic pressure cooker or any standard pressure cooker can really unlock some time-saving recipes. I think the coolest thing about pressure cooking is that now that America has kind of rediscovered it, it's really ignited a passion for recipe creation in communities. If you look in their Facebook groups, and uh, you know certainly there are tons and tons on allrecipes.com, it's people that have submitted things that have worked for them and have been delicious. And now you're seeing recipes get kind of a virality. And I think it's a virality that you haven't really seen since in a smaller setting, you know, the old school church cookbooks where Peggy's recipe is absolutely slamming. Hey, have you tried Peggy's recipe? Oh my gosh, Peggy's recipe is the bomb. And then, you know, Peggy would submit it to a place like allrecipes.com. That's exactly right. That's what's happening. They're giving yeah. their tried and true. It's getting word of mouth buzz. They told two friends and so on and so on. I've only been a chef or a cook or, a, you know, a celebrity for less than a decade now. You know, whereas there are people who have been cooking for their families for years and years and generations and generations. So who's to say that chefs or people on TV should be the creators? I think that like computer development and good software development, open source is the way to make things that are the best. And I think recipes and allrecipes.com and that sort of thing is the way forward in food. Can we talk about some of your tricks of the trade, though? Some of the things that you can help us learn to make it more flavorful, like I know sometimes people complain about the texture. I know you've got some tricks for getting it, getting your food super crispy and even browned, things like that. Can we run through some of your top tips? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll tell you the first thing that I think a lot of home cooks don't do is use enough oil, butter, fat, whatever your lipid of choice is. I think we don't use enough of those as home cooks. I think people are nervous about the idea of like, you know, fat is bad. Right. But I'll use the the words of the great guy Fieri, fat is food lube. And I think people are scared of using great cookware, i.e. cast iron, stainless steel, because they're afraid of sticking. But here's the thing. If sticking ruins your meal, then you have no food. So I'll take an extra tablespoon of fat divided amongst the six people that I'm serving the food for to provide that lubrication to make sure that the meal gets on and that I have stress-free cooking. The next thing is salt. It's another thing people are terrified of for some reason. Salt, you know, is a miracle. It's the only rock we readily eat. Of course, anything is edible if you try hard enough. But salt is a mineral that we actively consume, and it's a miracle. I think of salt as being like the corrective lenses for your tongue or the readers for flavor. I rarely in my life have food that is too salty. And I think that's 
because I have a good salt palate. That being said, I don't know of any ingredient that I don't like, and that's because I think I've experienced a lot of ingredients cooked at a great level with the right amount of fat and the right amount of salt. So those are the first two tips. Step it up slowly, surely. You'll realize that, wow, you can really push the limits of richness and saltiness as a home cook, and people will love you for it. When you judge a lot of these shows, even with top chefs, people who compete at the highest level every day in their restaurants or on food television, isn't that something that sends a lot of people home is lack of seasoning, lack of use of salt and of fat? Absolutely. And chef, I can't tell you how many times, and I think it's just people get nervous and they forget about these core concepts. And really fat and salt are the backbones of making delicious food. It really is. So I can't stress it enough. And truly, we send more cooks home on grocery games due to lack of salt or some sort of technical thing involving fat. It's a shame, but it's what happens. How do we get the browning? How do we get that reaction? I know what you're going to say, but I want our listeners to hear. Yeah. So Browning is something that I think a lot of people are hesitant about, especially when it comes to an electronic pressure cooker. See, not all of them are created equally. I worked with Ninja, full disclosure, to create the Foodie. If you notice the Foodie compared to other pressure cookers, it's actually wider. It takes up more footprint in your kitchen, which is generally considered to be a no-no in the world of appliances. People want minimal footprint. But the bottom line is you need space to sear to create that browning. And you need a powerful heat source in the bottom of it. So I told Ninja, look, I'm not gonna be on board with this thing if it doesn't have a wider surface area. If I can't fit four burger patties or if I can't fit the average portioning of stew meat without browning, we've got a problem. Lo and behold, they did it. So that's thing one, whether you're using a pressure cooker or not. Crowding things in a pan is generally the way to steamy, textureless food. I like wide stainless steel pans. I have one for searing. The same goes for my cast iron. In restaurants, though, we use a rondo. And a rondo is like two and a half feet wide sometimes. And it's designed for the multi use it over multiple burners. And that's the way we get browning in a restaurant. So you just got to apply those same tips to your home kitchen. The next thing, of course, is convection cooking. A lot of people have all these questions about air fryers. You know, they're super viral. I don't like thinking about them as being air fryers. I like to think about them as what they are. And that's a miniature turbo convection oven. Dry heat, circulating heat is always going to be the way to browning. And so if you like things super crispy, the air fryer, or as I like to call it, the uh, (laughs) turbo convection oven, is definitely a great investment. And how do we get that extra golden brown deliciousness? When we use the foodie together, you showed me, but I want you to tell our audience. So my hack is to use an aerosolized food lube of some sort. So you can use a spritzer, you can use a mister, but me, I just smack that stuff with nonstick spray (laughs) or toss it with oil. Anything really, if you want that golden crispiness, you need to make sure that you have an even dispersion of some sort of cooking oil. Mister, toss it in a bowl, any of those things. just got to make sure it comes back to once again, using enough fat. It's the bottom line. I think that that's a great nugget to take away. Don't be afraid of the fat and don't be afraid of the salt. And I think you're right. I think there's two components that people will shy away from. So you can do it in stages, though. You don't have to put it all in at once. If you notice on the food shows, there's always a stack of spoons there, right, chef? And you're tasting, tasting, tasting constantly so you can adjust the flavor because it does change with the addition of new ingredients. 
Oh, absolutely. And not only that, it changes during the cooking process. So, you know, something to think about, especially on the idea of salt, is that as you cook, essentially what you're doing is taking the water out of whatever it is that you are cooking. Generally, if you're going for brownness, you've taken it out to the point that you're actually toasting whatever the protein or vegetable or what have you is. So as water goes away, flavor intensifies and with it, often salinity. Sometimes I think people don't realize that certain ingredients they may be using actually already contain salt. And so when you add those in the cooking process, you have to be cautious that they don't reduce to the point of becoming too salty. It rarely ever, ever happens. But, um, you know, look at ingredients and find your salt sources because there are a lot of alternative salts out there that are a great benefit to increasing flavor. Uh, Worcestershire, soy, miso, pickle juice, all of these things have salt and they're great ways of adding oomph and adding exciting new flavor. So it doesn't just have to be our favorite edible rock. You can find salt in so many other sources. Yeah, I love pickle juice. I save all my pickle juice. It's like a prized possession, and I use it in all kinds of things, dressings and barbecue sauce. So yeah, like Justin said, guys, it's a great thought to think outside the shaker and look at new ways of incorporating salt into your cooking. So Justin, that brings me to another question. You're really involved with Marvel Comics, and I know you're a big comic book guy. I see you got a new cookbook coming out out with them. How in the world did you translate cooking to comic books? I don't even know how you made that happen. You know, Chef, I don't know either. Maybe that's my superpower. Um, Way back when, when I won Food Network Star, someone from Marvel knew someone at Food Network, and the person at Food Network was like, pretty sure they're a nerd. You know, do you want me to connect you? You could bring them onto a podcast. So I did a podcast with them, and I said, hey, like off the record, if you ever want to make some Marvel food, let me know. And so they were like kind of curious about this idea, and then they gave me a couple little like tester recipes. Like at the end of one of the movies, all of the Avengers go out for shawarma. And they were like, hey, can you make Avengers shawarma? Yeah, I can make shawarma, no problem. Send them the recipe. For some reason, it was a game day celebration, like Marvel's big game celebration. Then I made the wings that were red and waffled after the Falcon, Sam Wilson, who in certain versions of the comics is Captain America's sidekick, but also becomes Captain America. So I wanted to make something that was cool and like representative of his Harlem roots, right? So it was chicken and waffles all in one. And again, I used a waffle iron coming back to Tournament of Champions. I used a waffle iron to cook the wings. So they were like, wow, neat. Then they called me in to make monster. There are all these monsters in the Marvel Universe, monster inspired food. So I did this massive bone-in short rib for this creature called Devil Dinosaur, and I made it bright red, and I served it with a fossilized tomato. (laughs) It's not really fossilized, but it's a technique that causes vegetables to look as though they are rocks or that they've been petrified. So, you know, it was a shoe-in. The hosts of the show that were doing it at the time could clearly guess who these monsters were. Then someone behind the camera actually got an idea to just turn it into a full-fledged show. We did like 60 episodes. You can check them out on YouTube. And people were like, you know, these recipes are legitimately good. It's not just Instagram fodder or YouTube wowie zowies. It's real food for real people and consequently for made up people as well. Then we got this idea, like, let's put it into a cookbook. And that's just it. I like cooking to solve a problem. And I think a lot of people don't realize they like that too. Generally, that problem is hunger or having a family. But there are a bunch of other problems that cooking can solve. And it's not just food related, but sometimes it's... Yeah, emotional. It's all kinds of things. Right. To me, I see no difference in me solving the problem of what would Captain America eat that would also be entertaining to cook and cooking an apple pie for somebody who got a 
new home. These are both acts of creativity and of creation and of self-expression. We'll have more with Justin Warner right after the break. Hey, everyone. I'm Sid Evans, editor-in-chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce season five of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Welcome back to Homemade. I'm Marty Duncan, and today I'm talking to Chef Justin Warner. I want to roll back to your food roots even further than restaurant. Let's go back to Maryland. You're from Maryland. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you remember this, but way back in the day, you drew me a picture of a crab, and I have it like in a little tiny frame in my kitchen. And every time I look at it, I think of you. I know that crab and your Maryland roots are super important to you, and you go back frequently and visit. Tell me, in the early days, when you're a kid with comic books, what were your food roots at home? You know, my mom was pretty busy. Both of my parents worked. You know, I was in and out of daycare and whatnot uh, at an early age. So my mom wasn't a huge fan of cooking as we think it. She loved those semi sort of homemade things, you know, rice in a packet that you can't screw up. And I definitely grew up eating my fair share of kid cuisines. But sooner or later, my mom was like, you know what, I'm going to really start planning things out. So she would plan menus and she called leftovers leftovertures. And she just really wanted to, like, make things as fancy as possible and really have, like, a home organization plan. We weren't gourmets growing up, but we definitely ate well. I think the number one thing that influenced me as a kid was that nobody ever told me what I liked or didn't like. And nobody ever told me I couldn't have something or try something new. You know, my mom will tell you, I was three years old and I saw a bowl of calamari that someone was eating at an Italian restaurant, and they didn't tell me, no, you couldn't have that. I ate the whole bowl. And to me, as a three-year-old, I think I was attracted to the weird texture and the shapes that were in the bowl, tentacles and rings. You know, no food looks like calamari. Well, you know, in the all recipes community, 90s food, that throwback to 90s food and the 90s food nostalgia is a big thing. That's why I wanted to kind of talk to you about your food roots. Oh, man. 90s, I think, is actually when smoothies really took off. So I was like a smoothie king at like the age of like seven or eight. I just loved the idea of dumping stuff into a blender. And other than don't put your fingers in there, don't reach into the blender, it's actually a pretty safe tool for kids to use. So I was a smoothie junkie. I absolutely loved, for some reason, making dips in like crudite plates as a kid. Nothing is like more 90s than like cherry tomato, celery, carrots, you know, those bunny bite carrots. I'm sure that's trademarked. Oh, yeah. Ranch dressing. You know, I grew up in the age of pizza ranch. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. They made purple ketchup and green ketchup for a while. And then before that, the predecessor was they made pizza, taco, and I want to say hamburger flavored ranch. Terrifying, right? (laughs) 
That's awful. That sounds so Chef, terrible. I, I would take that stuff to the head, man. That was like shot of whiskey for a five-year-old. <laughs> you know, it's like do a shot of pizza ranch. I don't remember much about 90s food, so you're going to have to teach me. So there was actually pizza, I mean, and taco and ketchup? Hamburger flavored ranch. Oh, my goodness. That's hysterical. So the no-bake yeah. cookie thing, was that like when you'd come home from school, that thing you'd just pull out, like just mash up things together? No, you know, for me, Chef, the first time I made a no-bake cookie was at my restaurant because I knew that it would click with my generation of people. Everybody had it in their lunches at school. And it was something that the lunch gals could just kind of throw together but still maintain a sense of homemadeness. You know, if they didn't have time to bake, you can pour portion those suckers out with a scoop and you can make probably like 30 in an hour, if not more. So it really just depends on your portioning skills for that. I put it as kind of like the textural element in a soup. I know that sounds crazy. Sounds amazing. I do that sometimes too, like with goat cheese and toasted sesame seeds and things like that and roll it into a little ball or scoop it and then put it in the soup and it sort of just melts down in. Dark chocolate has an ability to be savory very, very quickly and the bitterness can provide a very unique foil in foods. So I love dark chocolate in like a squash soup. I think it's a real game changer. So if I had to say, Justin, I want you to make one recipe that's going to stand all the test of time and it's going to be the one thing that you're going to be remembered for forever. And I know the Foie Donut is your pinnacle. I realize that. I mean, it's been written up and talked about at length. So you might want to start with that. But if there's like a home recipe that you would be remembered for and that you'd want to pass on to all of us to make at home, what would that one be? The Foie Donut is definitely like going to be on my tombstone. And the recipe exists in one of my cookbooks, uh, The Laws of Cooking and How to Break Them. But I don't really prescribe that recipe for home cooks. It's actually a little bit tricky and difficult. But I think one of my favorites is probably, and there's really not any recipe for it, but there's some technique involved that I could certainly teach, but it's to cook a duck breast. And I know you you had ducks growing up, so this is probably (laughs) terrifying to you, but (laughs) a duck breast that is crispy skin and just medium rare to medium. And then a little salad of arugula with lemon and olive oil, maybe a shave of pecorino cheese, a healthy serving of black pepper on that salad. And then maybe a nice glass of wine or any sort of fruit-based beverage that you like. It's just such a winning thing that really, to me, like if anybody made that for me, they would say, Justin, I know you well and I love you. So I'm going to practice my duck cooking skills, even though I did have ducks growing up and I have an version to cooking them for that reason. But the crispy skin is the thing, though, rendering the fat. Can you talk us through a little bit of that technique? Absolutely. So first things first, if you want to make duck breast cooking easy, use an air fryer. There's something about that rapid convection heat that will get that skin crispy in absolutely no time. And because generally the heat is circulating all around the duck breast itself, it will cook perfectly and you'll get that medium, medium rare in no time. But if you were going to do it the old school way and say a cast iron pan, I would score the skin of the duck just so that the fat has more ability to render out, right? It's not sealed in its cells. You're actually doing what I call mechanical tenderization at that point. So score the duck breast on the skin. You start skin side down on a slow pan. I like to think of duck breast as being a chicken breast with bacon on one side. So you got to get that bacon crispy first, or the skin rather, crispy first. Then you flip it over and then you put it in the oven until it comes to the temperature that you want. I don't think that it's a crazy hard thing to do. And I think that if you cook it slow, 
slowly and gently, you will be met with success. But a lot of people get nervous about cooking duck. I think that, you know, you cook it one, two times, you're going to know how to do it. It's pretty easy stuff, really. Score the skin. Start with a cooler pan. Do we put down some fat to start to sear or? This is one of those cases where you don't because the duck has so much fat in it. It's just like bacon. You don't want to add butter to the pan <laughs> when you're cooking bacon. Maybe in the South, who knows? But As I say, maybe some folks down here do. <laughs> in general, I start baking off in a cold pan and just let that fat render out. And then it sort of confits or cooks itself in its own fat. And then finish it off in the oven until about what internal temperature do you think is the best for duck? My lawyers would not like me saying this, but I think like 130 to 135. Although the USDA and the FDA and all those people might disagree, but I think that's what most restaurants would do, right? Yep. Pretty awesome, Chef. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what you've got coming up down the road. I know you're super involved with the launch of the new cookbook for Marvel. What's that called and when will that be out? So that's called Marvel's Eat the Universe, the cookbook that comes out in summer. I've got some other tricks up my sleeve that I don't know that I'm at liberty to divulge when it comes to Marvel-related stuff. But let's just say, if you're a Marvel fan, stay tuned to my social media because it's going to be a very good summer for stuff involving myself and Marvel. Hey, so Chef, where can we find your Marvel YouTube videos? Tell everybody about how they find those because we talked about them earlier and I want to make sure people know where to go and, and look those up. Yeah, just type in the search bar, Marvel Eat the Universe. You'll find your way there. It's pretty easy. We're the only ones. I'm going to start working on my costume now for my sidekick buddy role. Uh, I can't do the two bracelets. She-Ra's got that. Crown, probably not so much. Wonder Woman. Kate, probably out. I'm going to have to work on it. Boots might be my thing. And a whip. Oh, my goodness, Chef. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, from the horses, the polo, I happen to have those. Maybe that polo helmet, too. I like where this is going, Chef. All right. Well, Justin Warner, Eat the Universe, the foodie, Guy's Grocery Games, and, of course, the new field comedy commentator on uh, Tournament of Champions for Food Network and my really good friend. I can't thank you enough for being part of Homemade here on the allrecipes.com podcast. Chef, it's an honor. I love you. I love you back. Bye-bye. Justin's cookbook, Eat the Universe, hits bookstores and the internet on July 28th. And you can find more of his Marvel-inspired recipes on YouTube. Just search Eat the Universe. Coming up on the next episode of Homemade, we're talking barbecue with the only pitmaster to ever win a James Beard Award, Chef Rodney Scott. You might have heard the saying, from the rooter to the tutor. You're cooking the head, the shoulders, the ham, the loin. You're doing all of that, you know, at once, the entire haul. Don't miss it. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do it. It's free, and each new episode will magically appear on your device as soon as it's released. And don't forget, you can find thousands of recipes, meal ideas, and cooking how-tos from the world's largest community of cooks at allrecipes.com. This podcast was recorded in Birmingham, edited in Atlanta, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or telling your friends about the program. You can find us online at allrecipes.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Homemade is produced by All Recipes with executive editor Jason Burnett. Thanks to our Pod People production team, Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, Tanya Ott, and Maya Croft. Thanks for listening. I'm Marty Duncan, and this is Homemade. Homemade.